It is that time of year again. The days are slowly but surely getting shorter. The temperature is slowly but surely starting to cool off more and more. And before we know it, the leaves will start changing colors. That's right, folks. Fall is in the air. It's coming soon. And with the coming of fall is what many consider one of their most favorite holidays of the year. Halloween. And of course, with Halloween comes some of my favorite things of all time. Horror movies. In this series, I'm going to share with you some of the movies that I consider to be foundational to my lifelong love of horror. Now, some of these movies are going to be older than some of you even listening to this show. <laughs> That's okay. Just remember, these are the movies that, that, that lit that spark in me to love horror. Welcome to My Horror History. I thought I was ready. After all, I had seen several horror movies. I'd heard all the rumors from my older siblings and my friends. I'd even started reading some horror literature given to me by my mother. Hitchcock, King, and so on. So as far as I was concerned, in my young mind, I thought I was ready. I was so, so wrong. Interestingly enough, it wasn't until I was older that I realized that I had pretty much blanked out the opening sequence of this movie, which is actually pivotal to the overall story. It begins with a sweeping night sh uh, nighttime shot of a city street. It's obviously a little chilly. A few people are walking about with coats on, and it slowly pans to an apartment window, and the light goes off. It then cuts to northern Iraq, a large archaeological dig. A small boy runs up to an old man and tells him something has been found. The old man goes and joins some of the workers and they're sifting through some small pieces. But something is strange about a couple of them. One of them is a seemingly out of place charm to a necklace and then the old man finds a what looks like a small head to a small statue. We then see the old man sitting in the city streets at a cafe enjoying some tea. But it's obvious he has some health issues. His hands are real shaky and he takes out a few pills and swallows them. He looks a little out of place. After all, he is a very old white man in the city streets of Iraq with the shakes. He later returns to what looks like the staging area of the archeological dig and he's going through some of those artifacts. He looks at the, the charm, which kind of actually resembles a coin and the small head. He's kind of fixated on the head. A man working there says to him, evil against evil. And he refers to the old man as father. Once he says father, the old man turns around because he notices the pendulum on a clock on the wall suddenly freezes. The man tells him, you know, I wish you didn't have to leave. But the old man says, there's something I must do. He then finds his way through the city and almost gets run over by a horse and buggy. 
and then he's back at the old ruins. He's kind of walking about, just looking around and suddenly a shadow overcomes him. When he looks to where the shadow is cast from, it is a large, evil looking statue. Just then down below, a couple of dogs begin to fight. This is Father Lancaster Marin, played by Max von Sydow. The movie then moves to Georgetown, Virginia, where we first meet actress Chris McNeil, played by Ellen Bernstein, who is trying to write, but she is disturbed by an odd noise as she lays in bed. She gets up and goes to her daughter Reagan's room, played by Linda Blair, and finds her room to be ice cold as the windows are open. She assumes the noises must be rats, and she tells the male, the male housekeeper as such the next morning before she goes to work on her movie set. On her way, and as she's working on her movie, we get our first glimpse of Father Damien Karras, played by Jason Miller. As Chris walks home, it, we notice that it's somewhat a peaceful, typical fall day. A few kids run past her in some Halloween costumes. Leaves are falling from the trees. The classic tubular bells plays in the background. As she's walking by the church, she overhears Father Karras having a discussion with another priest. Once home, she and Reagan have a typical mother-daughter evening together. If you haven't guessed by now, for this chapter of My Horror History, we're diving into The Exorcist. Father Karras is then taking the train home. He encounters a homeless man who kind of freaks him out. The homeless man looks at him. Father, can you help a poor altar boy? I'm Catholic. Karras seems upset by this and he kind of quickly shuffles off. He finds his way to his mother's apartment, which seems to be in a kind of run-down section of town. It's small and dark. She listens to a small old radio. It sounds like some very old Italian music. In fact, I'm not even sure how she's getting the, the, the frequency where she's at. They have dinner. He wraps her leg and says he wants to take her to a nursing home. She, of course, gets quite upset about this. This is my home. This is where I will stay. They enjoy the rest of their evening together, and as he leaves her for the night, he leaves her some money and walks out as she sleeps. Back at Chris and Reagan's, they're doing crafts in the basement when Chris finds that Reagan has a Ouija board. Reagan begins talking about someone by the name of Captain Howdy. Chris says, can I talk to it? Reagan's like, yeah, go ahead and try. But when Chris tries, nothing happens. It seems Captain Howdy only speaks to Reagan. Later on, Chris tucks her in for the night and they have a nice discussion about having a birthday party for Reagan. She's turning 13 after all. <laughs> We're then back with Father Karras, who's out having beers at a bar with his friend Tom. Karras expresses that he feels unfit and thinks he, he should quit. You see, Karras is the parish's psychiatrist, but he slowly but surely begin, is beginning to doubt his work. He's beginning to doubt what it's all about. He's even beginning to doubt his faith. He explains how he feels he's let his mother down. He feels he should be doing better for her. Maybe he should quit so he could do better for his mother. Later on, we rejoin Chris 
She's on the phone. She's mad. She's trying to get Chris's or Reagan's father to talk to him about Reagan's upcoming birthday, but she's having trouble getting through to him. And she has some choice words from for the operator who is trying to connect the overseas call and maybe find out where he is. Later that night, Chris gets a phone call. And when she rolls over, she finds that Reagan is in her bed. She's, she asks her, what are you doing here? Reagan says, my bed is shaking and I can't sleep. Chris gets up and goes down the hall. She hears those strange noises again. This time it seems like it's coming from the attic. Still thinking it's rats, she takes a candle to go take a look up in the attic. We get a shot of Reagan still lying in Chris's bed, her eyes kind of glassy and transfixed. She actually looks a little frightened. But once in the attic, Chris finds that the traps have not been touched. She keeps hearing the strange noise as she goes to take a look even further. Suddenly her candle just bursts, the flames jump up and she screams. But right then, the male housekeeper Carl is at the top of the ladder and he says to her, as you see ma'am, no rats. The next morning, we see a priest going into the church setting out some beautiful flowers. However, as he gets into the cathedral hall, he notices there is a statue that has been desecrated in a very disrespectful sexual manner. He's very shocked. The next thing we know, Chris has taken Reagan to the doctor for a checkup. Something's not right with her. Her room is always icy cold. She's gotten into Chris's bed saying that her bed is shaking and she can't sleep. And then as Reagan is lying there, waiting for some of the tests to begin, we get a quick subliminal flash of a demon. And it appears that only Reagan can see it. During the entire visit, Reagan acts a bit mean. She's kind of coarse and kind of rude to the doctor. Then she kind of acts a little weird, kind of like floating around, humming. The nurse in the room just looks at her. Maybe she's thinking, oh, this girl's just being a silly little... 13-year-old teenager, but suddenly she falls to the floor almost like she fainted. Finally, the doctor tells Chris that she has some hyperkinetic nerve disorder. Basically, it's just her nerves. So he prescribes her some Ritalin. He, he then explains to Chris that Reagan cursed him out. He first asks, does she ever use any foul language? And Chris is like, no. He's like, well, she cussed me out. He says he doesn't think she needs to see a therapist. Just get her on the Ritalin and don't worry about it, he tells Chris. We then returned to Father Karras, who was in a psychiatric hospital because his, his mother's brother, his uncle, has put her there because he found her in her apartment hysterically screaming at her radio. And she's very upset to be in this hospital. When Damien makes his way back to his mother, she looks at him bewildered and then turns away, just upset at him. Why did you do this to me, Damien? Why? He says he's going to take her home, but she's very upset and crying at this point. Later outside, he asks his uncle why they can't take her somewhere else. His uncle says what, to some sort of private hospital? 
Who can afford that? I certainly can't. You certainly can't. We cannot afford that. Later on, Chris is having a party. At the party, a fellow priest, Father Dyer, played by William O'Malley, tells Chris that Karis's mother has died. The director of the movie that Chris is working on, Burke, played by Jack McGowan, and who is seemingly somewhat a love interest, which is kind of odd, has too much to drink and begins insulting the German housekeeper, Carl. Lots of slurs about the Holocaust. and So he needs to be escorted out. Everyone else returns to the party after they get Burke out of the house. And we see Reagan laying in the bed. That same blank, transfixed stare on her face. Later on, as everyone is gathered around the piano singing some songs and having a good time, Reagan slowly makes her way down the stairs and stands there in front of everyone. Everyone stops and looks at her. She pees on herself and onto the carpet on the floor and says, I'm going to die up there. Later on, after the party, we see the housekeeper cleaning the carpet. Chris goes to Reagan's room and she's just holding her and consoling her. And Reagan asks her, what's wrong with her? What's wrong with me, mommy? Chris tells her, it's just nerves, like the doctor says. Just keep taking your medication and you'll be okay. Chris slowly makes her way down the stairs. Suddenly, Reagan is screaming. Chris runs back to her room and the bed is violently shaking. Chris jumps on the bed to try to help stop it. We are then back at the church where we find Father Dyer going to visit Karis. Karis is distraught. His mother has died. He blames himself. He feels guilty. They sit and they get a little drunk together. And Karis slowly falls asleep. Dyer tucks him in and leaves. Karis has a dream in which he sees the clock on the wall that was in Iraq when we first joined Father Marin as well as the charm that was on the necklace and it slowly falls to the ground. He also sees his mother coming up a subway stair. Karis is waving at her, but she just seems to be standing there. He tries to run to her. She slowly turns away and walks back down the stairs. We are then quickly flashed to a scene back at the doctor's office. They're starting to get a little more serious about Reagan's so-called medical condition. So they are trying to medicate her. She spits in the doctor's face and curses at him. We then get a shot of Karis leading mass. In his eyes, we can see his doubt. We're then taken back to the hospital after some tests or whatnot have been done. The doctor walks out to talk to Chris. Funny side note, he's smoking a cigarette as he walks out. <laughs> he attempts to explain to Chris about a rare temporal lobe condition that can cause convulsions. Chris tells him it's not possible what happened in her bed was convulsions. After all, she jumped on top of Reagan, tried to hold her down herself. He says, Mrs. McNeil, the problem with your daughter is not her bed. It's her brain. He says it's a lesion in her temporal lobe. 
causes these sorts of behaviors. He says, all they need to do is remove the scar. So Reagan is then submitted for a battery of tests, including a scene with a very, very large needle inserted in her neck. Very cringy, lots of blood squirting. It's a spinal tap. She is then subjected to a super loud MRI of her brain. Later on, after all the testing is done, the doctors are standing around looking at the scans. This is probably a couple days later. And of course, everything comes back normal. The doctors are a bit perplexed by this. Right then, as they're reading the scan, Chris calls. They, she needs them to come to the house to check on Reagan. When the doctors get there, they're thinking, okay, well, we'll go check it out. And sure, you know, probably, she's probably just having a convulsion or whatever. They go to the house and they go up to Reagan's room. Reagan is flailing back and forth on her bed violently. Mother, make it stop. It's burning, she screams out. The doctors are stunned, frozen in place. Reagan finally thumps hard onto the bed, and a huge lump grows in her throat, and there is a slow growl coming up into the room. Her eyes are completely white, as if they've either turned white or rolled completely back into her head. The doctor approaches, and just as he says, well, okay, we're gonna... She hits him in the face, knocking him down, and speaks in a monstrous voice, keep away, this sow is mine. She pulls up her pajamas and makes some very inappropriate sexual taunts. She screams and cries, and a slap and a bruise from an invisible hand strikes her face. The doctors manage to pin her down and get her sedated. Outside of the room as they're talking to Chris, they still want to blame the behavior as a psychological state. Chris still just doesn't buy this temporal lobe excuse anymore, but the doctors want to do another spinal tap. The doctors rationalize with her, you know, we have to rule everything out. Maybe we missed something. We need to go back in. Back in the hospital for poor Reagan, Loud machines again. Another spinal tap. And of course, the tests come back normal again. The doctors are stunned. They ask Chris, do you keep drugs in the house maybe? Of course not, she says. There are no drugs in the house. Finally, the lead doctor suggests a psychiatrist. As Chris makes her way home, there are emergency vehicles all around the church. When she gets inside, the lights keep flashing, the phone is ringing, but no one is other, on the other end. She's totally puzzled by this as she walks through the kitchen and we get another subliminal flash of a demon's face on the kitchen wall as Chris calls for the housekeeper. She goes to Reagan's room. Once again, it is freezing cold. The windows are wide open. When she returns downstairs, the housekeeper has returned and Chris is upset that Reagan has been left alone. The housekeeper explains that Burke was with her. Moments later, a knock on the door delivers some bad news. 
Burke is dead. Apparently, he fell down the stairs that are just outside of Reagan's window. And he broke his neck on the way down. This assumed that he was probably drunk and fell. The friend who tells the news leaves. Chris is distraught, crying, shaking. How much more bad news can she possibly take? Just then, there's thumping down the stairs. Reagan is coming down the stairs. Only, she's twisted like a spider. Her hands and feet are backwards as she quickly scurries down the stairs and growls with blood dripping down her face and out of her mouth. This particular scene was originally not shown in theaters. It was shown at a screening, but apparently it was too shocking for audiences at the time. Finally, Chris has taken uh, Reagan to be hypnotized. Reagan tells the hypnotist that sometimes someone is inside her. She doesn't know who it is. The hypnotist asks to speak to this someone. Reagan says she's too afraid. The hypnotist calls this someone forward. As he does, a picture falls off the wall. Reagan has a slow, menacing growl. And by the look of everyone's face, a foul, disgusting stench comes from her mouth. The, raid, er, the hypnotist asks who it is. Reagan grabs him and he drops to the floor. We then find Father Karras out jogging. He's jogging around what looks like a racetrack. Apparently he likes to keep himself in shape. He does kind of look like a boxer. And he is met by Detective Kinderman who tells him as such, you remind me of a boxer. The detective begins to question him, asking him if he knows about Director Burke's death that happened the other night. He also asks Karras, if he knows anything about witchcraft, Kinderman asks if he thinks the church vandalism that the priest had seen earlier has something to do with witchcraft. He tells him confidentially that one thing that a lot of people don't know about Berg's death falling down the steps is that his head had been turned completely around when he was found at the bottom of the steps. The detective theorizes that it's possible there may be some sort of cold activity or some insane person that connects these two incidents. He even theorizes that it may be some priest that Karis has seen as a psychiatrist. Maybe someone's having some severe mental problems, they're taking it out on the church, and they're starting to take it out on innocent victims, victims he thinks. Karis isn't very forthcoming with any information. He's like, I, you know, I, I, I don't think so. The detective's like, oh, okay, I get it. Doctor, doctor, uh, patient confidentiality. But he then he, he subtly threatens Karis, telling him that a psychiatrist in California was jailed for withholding information. He asks Karis to let him know if he thinks of someone. If anything comes to mind, to let him know. Finally, we're back at the clinic where Reagan has to keep going in for testing and Chris is sitting with the entire board. They, they say that they believe that it may be some sort of strange disorder that they've seen in subcultures whereas a mental patient thinks they are possessed or inhabited by something. Finally, her doctor suggests a Catholic exorcism. 
But, but this is because Chris is just extremely pissed off at this point because they keep giving her all these reasons and nothing seems to make sense. But the doctor says, you know, there is this thing called an exorcism. But what it really is, is just kind of like a power of suggestion. The victim, the, the patient believes all this stuff to be true. And of course, the, the church, the Catholic priests, these priests, they believe it. So through all this power of suggestion, they can actually alleviate this disorder. Chris is, Chris is still a little furious by this. She says, are you telling me you want me to take my daughter to a witch doctor? Reagan is then brought home, wrapped in a blanket, asleep. The detective is seen looking up the infamous staircase. Chris takes Reagan to her room and tucks her in, and as she does, she finds a cross under her pillow. Back outside at the staircase, the detective finds a figurine, kind of under some leaves. Chris questions Carl, the male housekeeper, about the cross. She's a bit upset by this. She questions the other two housekeepers. Back outside, the detective has walked up the stairs. You know, he's still kind of looking around for more clues, trying to find out what happened to Burke. And he happened to notice that Reagan's bedroom window is just above the top of the stairs. So he goes and rings the bell to question Chris about the evening that Burke was over and later found dead. After some very pointed questioning, the detective asks her for an autograph. And he goes ahead and says, you know, you can think of anything, you know, this is very, very strange. Just let me he tells her you're a very very nice lady and he tells her how much he loves her movies he's seen one of them multiple times once he leaves Chris is visibly shaken she starts to cry but then there is a loud ruckus in Rain's room Chris runs up and there is a very graphic scene with a cross. As she's shocked, the housekeeper runs up the hall to help, but the door slams shut and a chair slides in front of it. Chris is knocked to the floor, and Reagan's head turns backwards towards her to utter obscenities at her. Voluntary Input is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast, make money doing it. Go to anchor.fm slash start to join a diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. Finally, Chris meets Father Karis to discuss an exorcism. Karis tells her exorcisms really aren't done anymore, especially since the knowledge of mental illness has been gained. He gives her all the reasons why it's a bad idea. He says he can see her as a psychiatrist, but she begs him to see her as a priest and to just please help her. Please, she begs him, just come and take a look. Karis agrees, and he goes to her house. Right as he walks in, low, ominous growls can be heard from Reagan's room. 
Karis walks in. At this point, Reagan is filthy, disgusting, covered in scars and vomit. Her eyes are green and inhuman. Right as he gets to her room, though, the housekeeper Carl says, it doesn't like the straps. As Karis approaches Reagan, the demon says, take off the straps, and I am not Reagan. Karis says, well, who are you? The demon says, I am the devil. Karis kind of chuckles at this. And as he's looking around, he hears something that he'd heard before on the train. The voice of the homeless man. Can you help a poor altar boy, father? The demon then tells Karis that his mother is with them. Karis challenges the demon. Well, if she's in there, what is her maiden name? There is no answer. He asks again, what is my mother's maiden name? The demon projectile vomits all over his face. Later, we find him in the basement with Chris in the laundry room getting himself cleaned up. She's washed his shirt and is ironing it for him, and he's getting ready to leave. He's still apprehensive about helping with an exorcism. He then leaves. As he walks out and crosses the street, we notice that the detective is sitting out there basically staking out the house. Karis has a few recordings of Reagan. So apparently, as Chris communicates with Chris uh, Reagan's father, who's overseas, they make tape recordings to send him his letters. So he's basically listening, I guess, to, to get a feel for who Reagan is and you know, get a feel for the, the family dynamic and her voice and whatnot. We're then shown him leaning communion again, but again. Karis's eyes, he still looks doubtful, unsure, and hurt, especially after what has happened to his mother and the guilt that he feels. He goes back to see Reagan again, as he has agreed to, with, you know, he has agreed that he will try to do a, an investigation to try to warrant an exorcism to the church, as he ex has explained to Chris that that's the only way exorcism works. He has to get evidence that one should be warranted. So he goes back, and he's in Reagan's room. Her bed is now fully padded and she's completely tied down. The demon says, it's an excellent day for an exorcism. Care says, well, wouldn't that drive you out? The demon says, no, actually that would bring us together. Care says, you and Reagan? The demon says, no, you and us. Then, the, the demon begins to speak in Latin. Karis immediately hits record on his tape recorder that he's brought with him, because one evidence of demonic possession is if the victim is speaking a language that was previously unknown to the victim. Karis reaches in his pocket and he pulls out a small bottle of water. The demon says, what is that? Holy water, Karis says. The demon says, K 
keep it away. Karis begins splashing it on the, onto Regan, making signs of crosses and just generally flinging the water around. She squirms and screams and begins speaking in an odd language that Karis doesn't recognize. So he brings his microphone closer. As he leaves, he stops to talk to Chris and tells her, I told Reagan this is holy water, but it's actually tap water. And she reacted violently. And she began to speak in another language. And he first asked Chris, does she know Latin? And Chris tells him no. Karis is like, hmm. Still visibly, you know, visibly distraught. Chris tells him she killed Burke. She pushed Burke out of the window and killed him. He takes the recordings back to where he was listening to the other recordings previously. It's basically a sound room at the parish. And he's listening to it with a person who we're never really introduced to who this person is he appears to be some sort of sound engineer or whatnot this man tells him oh yeah it's another language all right it's english it's just english backwards the man reaches over and plays the tape in reverse and we can then hear the demon saying things like Give us time. Let her die. I am no one. Kill the priest. And finally, the demon shouts, Marin, Marin. Right then, Karis gets a call. It's the housekeeper. He rushes over and she brings him up to Reagan. Of course, the room is still ice cold and freezing. She pulls back the blanket and lifts up Reagan's pajamas. On her stomach, there are welts. Only these welts are letters. And these letters spell out, help me. The next day, Karis approaches the church about an exorcism. After the discussion he has with, um, with the lead priest, the leaderships, two of the leaders discuss, uh, discuss the issue and they decide, okay, well, we'll bring in someone and maybe get started. They think Karis should be present since first of all he knows about the case and they believe a psychiatrist should be present and Father Marin is suggested to take the lead one of the priests one of the elders says oh I thought Marin was in Iraq no he's back he's been here working on a book not to mention he has experience in this manner Apparently, Marin had performed an exorcism before in Africa, and it took months to complete. So they believe that he is the best man for the job. So a letter is sent to Marin asking him to come because he's needed for this exorcism. Reagan's face is shown. And it appears the demon knows that Marin is coming. A shot at night shows a taxi pulling up in front of Chris's and Reagan's apartment. It's Marin. He's arrived in the dead of a dark and foggy night. Again, we are shown her face. The demon knows he's here. It's time. 
As soon as Mira walks in, the demon screams his name. Marin sends Karis back to the parish and gives him specific tools to grab. He says, we need to begin immediately. Karis returns with the tools and Marin gives him the rules. Be careful about the demon's psychological lies and attacks. He will, he will mix lies with truth. He will say things to just basically try to get to you. Marin gives the impression that he knows this demon. The priests enter the room. It's time for the final showdown to begin. They begin to read the rites of exorcism. Karis is visibly shaken while Marin is steadfast and confident. The bed rumbles and thumps and rises. Karis is obviously afraid. Flashes show the demon's face. The scene is vile and filled with vomit and torment. Marin is kind of shaken and frail as they battle. The demon laughs. The ceiling cracks. The door slams and splits. Reagan turns her head completely around. The entire house shake. The demon tells Karis he killed his mother. The straps break that are holding her down and Reagan slowly floats into the air. Both priests repeat over and over, the power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. She lowers back to the bed. Karis ties her hands. As he goes to tie her feet, she knocks him to the ground. The house shakes so hard, both priests fall. Reagan rises in a, silhou a silhouette of the statue that Marin saw in Iraq. It slowly appears. The room falls silent. Karis covers Reagan and Marin suggests they take a slight rest before they start again. Marin goes to take his medicine. Karis returns to Reagan's room and the demon appears as his mother. It begins to speak at her and taunt him. Damie, why you do this to me, Damie? The demon persists and Karis is just shaken by this and screams, you are not my mother. Marin comes back in. He had warned Karis about this. Karis cracks. Marin tells him, just leave. Marin is alone with Reagan. He begins to silently pray and take Reagan's hand. Chris sees Karis sitting out alone and asks if, if it's over. He tells her, no, it's not over yet. She asks if Reagan is going to die. He tells her, no. And he slowly walks back up the stairs. As Karis reaches the top of the stairs and slowly enters Reagan's room, the doorbell rings. It's the detective. As Karis walks into Reagan's room, he finds Marin face down on her bed, the bottle of holy water on the floor just dripping. Marin is dead. Reagan is sitting in a chair, blankly staring. Karis tries to revive Marin. He pounds on his chest. Reagan begins to laugh, an evil laugh. Karis loses it. He 
grabs her, pissed off, slams her on the floor and begins punching her. He tells the demon, come into me, take me. The necklace Karis has on, she rips it off. And it's obvious the demon enters him as he suddenly becomes pale and shaky and his eyes turn colors. He goes to reach for Reagan's neck as if to choke her, but then he screams, no! And he turns and jumps out the window. Out the window to the stairs that Burke had fallen down and died upon. He tumbles down the stairs and lands bloody at the bottom of the stairs. Just then, Chris and the detective walk into the carnage. Reagan is crying and now apparently free of the demon. A crowd has rushed outside, ambulances, police cars, and Father Dyer. He rushes to the bottom of the stairs to take Karis's hand. He's still slightly living. He can only clutch Dyer's hand. Dyer prays over him, offers him confession, and then Karis is gone. Finally, Chris and Reagan are packing up to leave. The housekeeper gives Chris Karis's necklace that she found in Reagan's room. As she goes outside, she sees Dyer and tells him that Reagan doesn't remember any of it. Dyer says that's, that's probably a good thing that she does. Reagan comes out looks at Father Dyer and stares interestingly at his collar. She then reaches up and gives him a hug and a kiss. They get into the car and they slowly begin to drive off and Chris calls out to Father Dyer. She wants to give him the necklace that Karis was wearing but he tells her no Maybe you should keep it. Dyer has one final look at the stairs and he notices that the detective is at the gate. He tells him, eh, he just missed them. They just left. Reagan is fine. After a brief discussion, they decide to have lunch and walk off together. The nightmare is finally over. Like I said, this movie, it came out when I was very, very young. Um, I wanted to see it early on after hearing so much chatter about it, but my parents said, initially they said, no, too young. You gotta wait, you gotta wait. And I waited. Finally, when I got a chance to see it, when they finally said, okay, you can go see it, I went to the theater to see it. And as I said, I thought I was ready. I was not ready for this. To this day, The Exorcist still remains considered one of the best horror movies of all time. And although I didn't go into complete detail, Hopefully, I offered enough to let you know why it is considered that. And if you still haven't seen it, and if you love some really good scary horror, I suggest that you check it out. It was released December 26, 1973. And it's crazy to think that even to this day, it still holds such impact as a horror juggernaut. Some interesting facts about this movie. Uh, the, the projectile vomit scene with Father Karras 
it only required one take because apparently the tube and mechanical mechanism used to shoot the vomit out malfunction. It was supposed to hit the actor that played Karis, Jason Miller, it was supposed to, supposed to hit him in the chest, but it malfunctioned. So that look of shock that you see on his face when he gets hit, that's actually completely genuine. And so they kept it in because it was perfect. Now, Miller later admitted that he was actually angered by this. I mean, you know, this was a malfunction. He got in the face. He was supposed to get hit in the face with this, this slimy, gooey stuff. And by the way, back then, they used to make vomit out of mashed peas, pea soup, and syrup and other concoctions. So you can imagine that kind of stuff flying and hitting you in the face when you're expecting to hit, you know, expecting it to hit you in the chest. <laughs> uh, the actress that played um, Reagan, of course, is Linda Blair. Now, at the time, she began receiving death threats from religious zealots who believed the film glorified Satan. So Warner Brothers had to have bodyguards protect her for six months after the film was released. Also, this is Warner Brothers' highest grossing film of all time when adjusted for inflation, as well as the highest grossing R-rated film of all time. And finally, well not finally, also <laughs> those stairs, those famous stairs uh, in, that you know, uh, two people fell down and died upon. I actually got a chance to visit those stairs in Virginia when I was younger. I was like 19 years old. I ended up moving out there with some friends. That's another story. That's a whole podcast in and of itself. But we, you know, I got taken to, to see where those stairs and yes, they are very steep and they look extremely dangerous. Now, I don't know if they still do this, but at the time I visited them, they had them roped off because there were still too many people curious about going up and down the stairs foolishly. So, you know, it's private property. That's actually some stairs that lead to some apartments. So they would keep it roped off and you were not allowed to go on those stairs. Also, and this is finally, although the movie never mentions the demon's name in the book, uh, Platy pins a demon by the name of Pazazu. Pazuzu, I'm sorry, it's pronounced Pazuzu, a powerful half human, half animal demon based on a mythological uh, figure native to Babylonian culture. <laughs> All right, guys, thanks for tuning in to chapter three of my horror history. This was one of the big ones, <laughs> The Exorcist. This movie, uh, it, it completely turned around my perspective. It shocked me and moved me in more ways than one. As I told you guys in past episodes, one thing that scares me a lot is anything that, uh, you know, that's, that's faith-based. And this was just chock full of it. I mean, what else, what else could you ask for? It is a battle between good and evil, a demon and priests totally terrified me to no end. In fact, it was one of those movies, you know how when you watch a scary movie like a ghost, a ghost story, and you kind, kind of find yourself after the fact kind of looking around a little bit. Well, when I was younger, and this is kind of funny to think about now, when I was younger, I remember waking up you know, kind of touching myself. Do I feel normal? Am I okay? I'm not possessed. Am I? I mean, I can laugh at it now, but however, even as just a scary movie in and of itself to this day, when I watched this movie and I rewatched it just to, to gather more details for this episode, even just rewatching it for this episode, I still get chills watching this movie. It still holds up. It's still a classic. All right, guys. Well, thanks for tuning in to chapter three of my horror history. And I hope you stick around for chapter four. If you want to find out more about voluntary input, just go to voluntaryinput.com. 
There you can select contact us if you have any questions, comments, show ideas, or better yet, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, because as always, we are always looking for great guests. Also, while there, if you would consider selecting support the show, there you would be taken to our Patreon page, as well as where you can buy us a coffee or give us a recurring gift. Your support helps us continue this show and bring you great content like this. And don't forget to tune in to Weekend Chill exclusively every Friday night at 11 p.m. Eastern and every Saturday night at 11 p.m. GMT over on Mixcloud. And finally, please consider supporting and listening to your favorite indie podcasts like Voluntary Input. There are some great indie podcasts out there, and I'm sure you may be listening to some of them now. Show them some love, show them some support, give them those five-star ratings, give them those reviews. Believe it or not, guys, that stuff helps. All right, take care and see you next time for chapter four of My Horror History. Never forced, never coursed. Open discussions about things in life that matter to you most. From tech to TV, movies, and gaming, and everything in between. Visit voluntaryinput.com to subscribe, contact us, and find out how you can support the show. Catch new episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you listen to podcasts. And be sure to join us every Friday night at 11 p.m. Eastern and Saturday night at 11 p.m. GMT for Weekend Chill, exclusively on Mixcloud.